My guest today is an author, the author of Esoteric Hollywood, parts one and two. He is a podcaster, a YouTuber, a comedian, and someone who I have come to follow for his analysis of propaganda, uh, the machinations of the elite, philosophy, religion. He's basically out there roaring about all sorts of stuff that I'm interested in, so I'm very pleased to welcome Jay Dyer. Jay, are you ready to roar? I am, man. Thank you for having me here. Uh, glad to be on your show, and uh, I love talking about the writings of the elite because they tell everything in their books. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's, it's a topic that you talk about a lot. And um, I specifically brought you on today because you recently did a video about this book called uh, The Next Million Years, which I had never heard of. And it's just uh, one of those fascinating deep dives that we'll get more into in a second. But first, I want to learn just a little bit more about you. So take it from wherever you think it might makes the most sense. But I'm just curious how you first took an interest in everything it is that you're out there talking about, be it philosophy, religion, uh, the elite, what have you. So take it from wherever it makes the most sense for you. I wasn't like raised a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. I was just raised, I guess, a, a normal uh, dude. I was raised on pop culture and wanted to be uh, in film and TV and all that. So that's that was just what I found interesting. I, lived, I grew up in a small town, so we didn't have a whole lot to do here except come up with fanciful dreams of things to do. So um, uh, either that or you get on meth. So there's like the two options where I grew up. <laughs> so uh, I chose the dreamy option and... Uh, by the time I went to college, uh, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to focus on. So I chose philosophy and uh, film uh, at the same time. And that kind of took me in the direction of comparing the two. I didn't major in film, but I took a lot of film classes. But anyway, long story short, I did uh, a thesis on um, propaganda and James Bond uh, in my master's uh, program. And then that got me uh, looking at the way that <clears throat> movies and TV and, and whatnot can be construed as psychological warfare. So uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Mad Men, but uh, I never did watch it, but I was just watching it the other day and I was like, they kind of do like that. <laughs> that's kind of what I was doing was analyzing propaganda, not making advertisements, but kind of the same stuff they do in that show where they try to figure out like what gets people's attention and whatnot. Anyway, so that got me looking at uh, the writings of the elite because I had watched uh, Jason Burmis's uh, uh, Loose Change documentary back in about 2003, yeah. and that kind of took me down the rabbit hole. I'd already been listening to Alex Jones a little bit at that time. And I stumbled across his uh, stuff uh, back in 2003 about Bohemian Grove and Skull and Bones, and that got me looking at these secret societies. And so because my mom was a uh, an editor, uh, I grew up around books and then she was also a librarian later on, on in life and so i just had constant book exposure so i was always reading books always collecting books and um anything that i've heard of that i sound that sounded interesting i would just go get a book on it so whether it was conspiracy topics or espionage or the united nations or whatever so just over the years I ended up collecting thousands of books and um reading a lot i haven't read all my books but uh yeah, so that's what got me into doing this side project of uh, lecturing on the writings of the elite, which kind of turned into a whole uh, thing of its own where people subscribe to the website to get kind of a quicker, fast-track education in the writings of the elite, because most people don't have time to sit and read, you know, a 1,300-page book by, uh, by Carol Quigley, like Trajan Hope, or, uh, you know, big, fat geopolitical tomes. So I, so I go and read them and just summarize them and lecture on them, and, uh, you yeah, know, that's how I got I don't even, I think I came across Charles Galton Darwin because uh, Alan Watt, I think, mentioned him in one of his lectures. And I was like, what? The next million years. That's a weird sounding book. And he pointed out that 
that this dude comes from the Galton and the Darwin families. Uh, so obviously he has an important pedigree and he comes out of the circles of that uh, Oxford, Cambridge, Royal Society kind of elite. And they were always into interbreeding. They were always into um, eugenics or even dysgenics, mass depopulation, Malthusianism, et cetera. So I had to read the book. I got it uh, ordered on Amazon maybe. I don't know, five years ago, I did a video back then when I read it and I re-evaluated uh, it the other day because there was a dispute people were trying to debate the other day on a certain live stream about what Malthusianism was. <clears throat> and I forgot that he has a whole chapter on it saying that, yeah, of course, uh, uh, of course, our whole philosophy is, you know, undergirded by Malthusianism. For a long time, I was an, an AJ fan too. I mean, I still certainly am to to a large extent. And but a, a lot of the stuff that he would talk about when it came to the elite, when it came to uh, global government depopulation, this sort of stuff, it felt like okay, yeah, maybe, like maybe this is maybe they're really doing this, or maybe it's just a bunch of guys who get together and write about this stuff, and yeah, this will probably never affect my actual life. It's, it was just more of a hobby of something to be interested in. But I think after the last couple of years, especially, especially for people that have been following this stuff for a long time, thinking about this idea of the elite and Malthusianism and how it actually is affecting our lives, it's just become so obvious that it can't just be something we see as a hobby. It's actually something we have to combat and figure out how to deal with. Uh, I'm curious if you had a a similar sort of leap like that when this was an interest for you, maybe when you first started looking into propaganda and just found it fascinating. And and if there's a point where you said, oh, wait, no, this this is like part of our lives and it's something we have to actually grapple with right here and right now. Kind of. I mean, I had a, I had a religious upbringing to a degree, so I kind of had a respect for the Bible and whatnot. I mean, when I was in high school, I didn't really care about it. I just kind of partied and did whatever. But by the time I was 18, 19, I started getting back into reading the Bible and was reading what you could call kind of evangelical conspiracy type books. Um, I didn't buy them wholesale, but I thought, well, there, there might be something to this. I remember reading some of the first books that were talking about the United Nations and communism. And those, those books were kind of situated in a kind of a Cold War era notion of conspiracies, which isn't totally wrong. I mean, I mean, it's not like there are no conspiracy or that, that there was no <laughs> Soviet conspiracy or anything like that. But sure. um, it wasn't ultimately the Soviets. And I think that was kind of the, the disinformation or uh, distraction involved in a lot of that Cold War era propaganda. But I did get introduced to some of the topics. Like, well, wait a minute. So if the United Nations is part of, a, I think that was the first one that I ever read about. If the United Nations is part of a goal or an overall plan to make a world government and if they have these um plans to uh basically co-opt the world religions and make them into a a palatable world religion that sort of fosters and and promotes the world government then uh that's something that i have to like you know think about like is there evidence of this and there does appear to be evidence by very wealthy powerful people that they're into this so I mean, that just happened to be kind of the first thing that I stumbled upon was Rockefeller support for the United Nations and all that. So I was kind of yeah realizing that, I mean, this is a real thing. It's not something that um, is completely kooky or, or wacky or made up. And yeah, I think that because I had kind of a loose biblical uh, idea of the spiritual world and that we have to battle against evil spirits and this kind of stuff from my upbringing that for me, it kind of felt natural that there would be a, a global manifestation of that, um, of that spiritual warfare in terms of um, evil human beings that serve Satan, whether they know it or not. 
Does that make sense? What I'm saying. So, so in other yeah, words, I was already. It does was, to me. Kind of, it, it 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 came easier to me, maybe because of having a just a, even. I wasn't even that serious about like you know Bible or whatever growing up, but it you know it taught me oh there's good and there's evil and yeah there's a devil and you know, there are people who are in the world who are very evil and so yeah. you know I was kind of primed for that I guess you could say. It's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I similarly was like raised in a you know, not not extremely religious household, but I was raised Jewish and, you know, went to Jewish school and learned the Bible and all that stuff, but never took it seriously so much and, and definitely went into my atheist phase. Then sort of my Alan Watt kind of like, you know, every religion is the universe kind of stuff. And but I think having that context and having that background as a child does kind of put things in a different view nowadays you know now it's it does let you see like well okay maybe that maybe those weren't just like nonsense stories maybe they are actually describing our reality in a way that i i never would have comprehended maybe if i wasn't exposed to that and stuff at an early age exactly i remember i had a uh, bad acid trip one time too that um when i was i think 17 and that really kind of like woke me up to the possibility that (laughs) because man i'm not trying to put too much weight on this experience but i remember that kind of broke through my perception of what exists and doesn't exist because I was interacting with some sort of entity. And uh, it was, I mean, it was terrifying. It was a terrible experience. I would never want to do it again. But I remember coming out of that experience thinking, well, maybe, wow, maybe, you know, there really are uh, beings or entities beyond just the physical plane, you know, that, that have some kind of either positive or malicious intent towards human beings and so that kind of opened my mind up to the possibility i think of there being a spiritual realm and this kind of stuff which which i i had like i said like my religious upbringing talked about that but i'd never experienced it so i didn't really like you said put put much weight into it but uh and then separately from that when i started studying i was studying philosophy but i was also taking classes on film and um geopolitics at college and i remember thinking well actually it's not so much conspiracy as it is that the, the what it's what's going on in the real world is espionage right so if you want to understand the real quote conspiracy world it's actually just a lot of espionage and geopolitics and so i went further into that domain and that helped me kind of get grounded in um not falling over over into the goofier conspiracies, right? Like, I mean, there's some obviously ridiculous conspiracy theories out there that kind of make conspiracy theories seem ridiculous. Right. Sometimes they're they're uh, they're there to do that on purpose. Mm-hmm. But um, if you look at it from the vantage point of power uh, politics, uh, power blocks, and espionage, then it starts to make sense why there are these narratives, fake fake stories, fake events, fake flag events, right? All of these things make sense in the context of uh, espionage and warfare. So I, I read a lot of books on, uh, you know, how people engage in deception in warfare. And that played into what goes on in mass media, right? Because a lot of the people, with the, with the early founders of mass media came out of wartime intelligence operations. So they, they would just take their techniques and tactics from the wartime and put it into um, mass media news uh, newspapers, advertisements, all of that. And that's why a lot of those people, for example, Henry Lewis, the, the founder of Time Magazine, was a famous Skull and Bones guy. And he was just using Time Magazine. I mean, it was a money-making thing too, but it was also a vehicle for the Eastern Seaboard uh, elite, the Skull and Bones elite, to basically promote their narratives um, and propagandize through, through Time Magazine. <laughs> 
Hey gang, gotta take a quick break to make sure that you know that if you're enjoying today's interview with Jay Dyer, you could have seen it, you could have heard it live weeks ago, a couple weeks ago actually. If you supported us on one of several platforms, you can support us on Patreon, where we have many, many different tiers. You can jump on monthly calls with the host. You can even produce an episode of the show. So many ways you can join the fun over there. Or if you are Patreon adverse, which I know many of you are, you can head over to Locals, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Either way, you will get access to many of my interviews ahead of time, as well as bonus shows like Conspiracy Corner, like Degenerate Gamblers, monthly bonus, Ask Me Anythings with the host of this show. There is just so much much fun to be had again at patreon.com slash lions of liberty or at locals lions of liberty.locals.com check them out if you don't mind i, I kind of want to go back to your acid trip for a second sure a, a phrase that when i started this podcast i probably never thought i'd say on the show i want to go back to your acid trip but i, I am kind of curious about that because i think a lot of people might hear you say you know i had this bad acid trip and it you know i felt like i was interacting with an entity of some kind and they'll say oh cool well this teenager took some bad acid whatever um but well from what i've read let's say uh when you are on a psychedelic of some kind you can you certainly feel like you are perceiving things in a perceiving the actual world in a different way not necessarily just a a it's not like you see start seeing cartoons or something like that i mean and it can be argued all day long um how much of a psychedelic experience is is just in your mind how much of it is your mind opening up to interact with something else but do you mind describing that just a little bit um for people out there what that was really like to you and and why that whether you not whether or not you think that now necessarily like why you felt that to be real or real enough that it it, it made you think okay like this this is a spiritual battle and there are this is not necessarily a metaphor there are actual entities that are out there no i don't care i've made a bunch of videos joke comedy videos talking about it uh it's it's a funny the whole story is funny i won't tell the whole story but basically <laughs> no the first time i did it um uh it was pretty strong and and it it was uh way more intense than any, any of the other times that i did it so i did acid i don't know five or six times not not that many times but this is like when you're in high school yeah so i was like 17 and we were just going over to a friend's house to a party and i did acid not really i, I was thinking it would be like weed or something like it would it was, right. oh it'll be a little stronger than weed. it wasn't like that at all it was like surprise and this is really strong so um and i don't know if my buddies knew that it was extremely strong if they were messing with me i don't know but uh so i mean it was a really intense trip it lasted all night i mean i know that it's an eight hour you know sort of cycle but for me this lasted all night and and the reason this was so bad is that i didn't just have a bad trip like seeing you know creepy things like i blacked out and so i was out for four hours in the bathroom and for me and i actually had an out-of-body experience and so what appeared to me was basically a point of light um i don't remember the whole like series of events because it was kind of out of it was like in being in a dream state basically yeah. so it didn't really occur like you know in a sequential series but um so i at that time i didn't know what it was i was like well this is an angel i guess i don't i mean i just kind of put it in my worldview as best i could i don't remember what was said to me or what happened <clears throat> but it was about a four hour time frame where i came back down and you know kind of sobered up a little bit i was still tripping pretty hard when i came back down but they were thinking like we, we we didn't know if we should take you to the <laughs> emergency room or what but uh i mean it was just it was really bad for me i mean i was like super out of it you know for four hours and 
I was trying to throw up and obviously you can't throw up. That made it even worse because of like vomit taste in my mouth the whole time. And um, yeah, so when I came back from that, I was like, oh, wow. So, you know, something was communicating to me. It wasn't just all, um, you know, my mind sort of playing with reality because I was getting messages. It's a lot like if you listen to the people who tell the stories of their DMT trips and the mm-hmm. <clears throat> clockwork elves and all that. And all oh, that was, it was talking to me. Blah, blah, blah. It was like that, but it was like, it was just a like a dot of light basically i don't know i don't know how else to describe it but uh now looking back i look at look at that like well i think that was something demonic because uh it didn't it wasn't a positive uh experience for me it was all negative mm-hmm. uh i came away from that experience very uh arrogant and very you know sure of myself that i had solved the world which a lot of people who do ask this oh they sold the world dude um I didn't solve the world. I was just an arrogant douchebag. Even more, even more like feel. Oh, I've been through this, you know, shamanic journey. So I'm like super enlightened right. now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, uh, now I look back on that and I think it was something demonic. And I, I like I said, doing acid about five times after that, it was not nothing ever anything like that. It was always like mm-hmm. just a normal kind of like everybody's laughing and yeah, you know, there's colors and there's breathing walls and uh, there was one that you mentioned a cartoon character. There was there was one experience where the we were watching an ad and uh the cartoon character came out of the ad and did dance on the floor but other than that well, that was the uh extent of the <laughs> of the visual sequence other than that minor detail <laughs> yeah and i'm um, so i'm just kind of curious your view on this since we're kind of going down this rabbit hole a little bit do you think that certain psychedelics like the chemicals and psychedelics they they change our mind or how our brain works to allow it to i guess maybe communicate or allow it to allow, create some sort of bridge to i guess maybe the spiritual plane the spiritual yes, realm and that could be a positive thing or it could in certain situations be a negative thing it could be positive or negative but i, I don't think it's good to do i mean you know anything that that i mean there are bad ex- good things could come out of a car wreck right but i don't want car wrecks <laughs> right. to happen right. because potentially them. you could get get a good experience out of that so in the same way i, I don't personally i'm not an advocate of uh, hallucinogens or any of these kind of shamanic things i think they're they're dangerous and they're bad news but um even though i don't think it was a good thing i think ultimately it did have a positive effect in my life in the sense that it did kind of like like i was saying open me up to um you know spiritual realities but in my view now yeah i, I think that um it does uh, basically give us an access to the spiritual world. Um, so I don't think the spiritual world is not, in my view, something like way off out there. It's like here, but it's a different dimension, maybe. Right. My take. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll let people stew on that for a little bit. So let, let's dive into this book, The Next Million Years. And maybe you could even get into the history. You mentioned the names there, Galton and Darwin. So maybe you can give us a little of the context of those families. Obviously, people definitely know the Darwin name. And um, then kind of where, where, you know a little bit of the history of this book. So uh, he was the son of a guy called George Howard Darwin, who was a uh, knighted mathematician, Sir Darwin. and Charles Galton was the grandson of Charles Darwin. So I'm sure everybody knows who that is. But his mother was another uh, nobility woman, Lady Darwin. And so they came from this uh, prominent family. They married into the family of the Keynes. If you're familiar with John Maynard Keynes, the famous uh, economist, socialist-ish, socialist-ish economist. Uh, and then he was in the circles of Cambridge uh, elite who, if you read the Tragic Hope, that's all the kind of 
uh, upper crust of the Royal Society type people. Um, He also has a relationship to the Galton family. And if you read Galton's writings, he was a a fierce advocate of depopulation and um, eugenics. So that's the family from which he arises. And he did a lot of uh, scientific work, like his whole his whole focus was on stuff relating to um, quantum optics and and magnet magneto optics. Uh, I don't even know what that is, but uh, he was he basically did a lot of sciencey shit, right? So he was a mm-hmm. science man, and um, so he wrote this book, kind of giving the attitude of the people in the circles that he was in and that, that Royal society scientific elite crowd. And I, I found this to be such a, uh, an amazing treatise because of what it admits beyond a lot of the other treatises from people in those circles. So I've done a lot of Bertrand Russell's books, mm-hmm. HG Wells's books, um, other Royal society people who say similar things. And in my view, it's all the same power structure. So the, the, Oxford, Cambridge, um, UK elite schools are allied with the American elite universities, usually funded by the Rockefellers, people like that, Carnegie's, JP Morgan. Uh, so, so the brain trusts will come out of the universities and they'll be recruited into this structure. Quigley describes the structure of this, even calls it a secret society in uh, his book, Anglo-American Establishment, where he says that at the top was uh, Lord Rothschild and uh, Cecil Rhodes. And then under them, they had a, uh, a society of what they call the Society of the Elect, which was like 12 super prominent, rich families and people. And then uh, under them was what they call the helpers. And this was a few thousand academics. Mm-hmm. So the academics are recruited into this at varying levels, not necessarily knowing what they're a part of. Some so of that would be like are. a Bertrand Russell would be in that category. Russell would be knowing what's going on full, full on. So he was in that. He wasn't in the top 11, but he's, he knows the plan of the top 11 slash 12 people. Uh, Galton Darwin, uh, he knows the plan because because they wrote about it. Right. So like they, they literally put it in the books. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of like nowadays, if you go to a local university, you'll find people. I had people in my university that were recruited at varying degrees to work for different big globalist agencies. Um, I spent a lot of time arguing and debating with those people, professors at my school. I don't think they knew the whole plan. Um, I think they were recruited into very lower levels of this plan, but I don't think they knew the whole plan. But these people, they know the whole plan. And and you can usually tell when you read these writings, these books, like they'll they'll just mention it like straight out. And this again, I mean, this is people writing about this from 100 years ago to, to now. And it's a continuity of agenda. For example... Um, the earliest ones that we could find that were like really uh, sp- specific, uh, my buddy Tristan found Lord Birkenhead's uh, 19, 1919, 1920 cosmopolitan um, essay that he wrote. And that was, this is like, you know, a decade before uh, Huxley or anybody had written Brave New World. And he basically says, what we're going to do in 100 years will blow you away. Uh, we're going to have babies in test tubes. Uh, we're going to depopulate everybody. <laughs> like there's going to be TV screens everywhere. Right. So he wrote this in like 1910, 20. Right. Uh, and then <clears throat> same people from the Royal Society and the Fabian Socialist Society writing the same stuff in the 20s, 30s, 40s, like Russell and like Wells, uh, Lord Curtis, uh, a lot of these, you know, so-called lords and ladies. Right. And then in the <clears throat> American establishment by 
the 50s, 60s, you get people like Quigley writing, you know, gigantic books defending the same agenda because they had been brought back under the British imperial agenda covertly through people um, who, who came and helped set up the U.S. intelligence apparatus. So basically, the, they're called the Irregulars. It's like Noel Coward, uh, Ian Fleming of James Bond fame. Mm-hmm. This is how I stumbled into this stuff through studying yeah. James Bond yeah. and Ian Fleming. Uh, William Stevenson, like they literally helped set, uh, build on and set up the intelligence apparatus, the OSS. But the real reason for all of that was to get them back into the Anglo-American power block, which would be the power block, which would, from their vantage point, set up the new world order, basically. So Galton Darwin is in these circles is what I'm trying to say. And if you want proof that it's the same agenda, I mean, what Klaus talks about in the Great Reset, what Noah Yuval Harari talks about in his lectures is exactly the same thing that 100 years ago, Bertrand Russell H.G. Wells were talking about. And you can fast forward up to the 50s. It's the same thing that Charles Galton Darwin's talking about. It's interesting to me that, okay, when, when we have these, they have these plans that they're you know, trying to steer the world in, in a certain direction. Why do you think it is that they have all these very public, very accessible? Now, maybe maybe back in the day they weren't as accessible because you didn't have the internet and we couldn't just go find this stuff so easily. But why are why do they lay these plans out so openly? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, like you said, so prior to the internet, the only people who would be reading these books or even have access to these texts would be people in graduate programs or in university programs where you would be told to read these books basically right? right i mean the average american wouldn't be reading tragedy and hope in the 60s yeah and I, I never would have heard of it if it wasn't for the internet you know 10 15 years ago yeah i mean very few people would have heard of it um unless you had been at you know georgetown's international relations program right i mean bill clinton was under the uh, quigley at georgetown so he was mm-hmm. that was his mentor so bill clinton would have read this in the mm-hmm. 80s yeah. And he would have known, right, because that book was given out supposedly to like to CIA section chiefs in the 60s and 70s to help them understand what was going on and why. Why would we be funding and aiding communists right, in different situations? And the book is, is sh- saying, well, there's a, lo- a bigger plant, longer, big plan agenda at work here. It's not about funding communism in some, you know, third world country that that's the that's the real issue the real issue is the long-term agenda of bringing in the technocratic global government and that's what quigley says in the book i mean he says in the middle chapter there's a whole um chapter on the future world government being run by supercomputers and he wrote that in the 60s so the book is not by the way a conspiracy book it's an apologetic for what the anglo-american establishment wants to establish in the world so he wrote this as a defense saying, look, this is the best hope for the world. We have to depopulate. We have to do all these things because if we don't, then the world's going to fall apart. It'll be crisis. So, which is funny because they engineer all these crises anyway. So like, it's like, well, we have to engineer the crises because if we don't engineer the crises, then there will be crises that will be engineered. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm- it's really interesting, like just even the the con the, the title of this book. It's it's almost it sounds comical. The next million years, like there, like to, the idea of planning out a million years. But it, it does make me think, you know, 
is there a spiritual, how much of a spiritual component is there to this stuff for the elite? Because a lot of the stuff that they're talking about is stuff that none of these people are really going to see, even at least when we're talking about the writings of a uh, hundred years ago or uh, 200 years ago, it's not stuff that they're even considering that they're going to see in their lifetime. So why do they care about this future, whether it's a hundred years, 200 years, a million years away? What What is it within them that, that makes them dedicate so much of their life in this material world or at this, at this time in their, you know, in their, in their existence to this dystopian future that they won't even live to see uh well i think some of them have faith in technology to the degree that they think they'll be like re, re- resurrected brain or in the jar kind of thing or? yeah so they probably think that the that cloning will advance to the degree that i mean bertrand russell talked about cloning in his books back in the 30s 40s 50s so he he had a lot of mm-hmm. faith in that um I can't remember if H.G. Wells mentions cloning, but he probably has the same view as Russell and everybody else in those circles. But uh, I mean, it's it's a radical faith in science, and to the I mean, it, it, scientism is is an accurate description. Um, I don't. I, I think Charles Galton Darwin mentions cloning too. If I remember. Uh, but yeah, that would be the answer is that they think that there will be basically science will overcome any of these road bumps, <laughs> roadblocks to to the end goal of transhumanism they're all transhumanists right i mean it was the, the word transhumanism comes from the, these people from their circles it was julian huxley that, that coined that term and he wrote the philosophy of unesco which is basically a uh, transhumanist depopulation treatise and what's funny is that if you read that essay uh philosophy of unesco it literally is saying that national socialism had it right like the nazis were right but that's taboo <laughs> so we can't we can't use this terminology anymore so let's just like reword everything as biometrics and uh genetics and genetic health basically is what they did but it's this exact same philosophy and it's not about a philosophy or the other tw- thing they tweaked is that it's also not about one teutonic germanic group of people it's we'll just take the quote scientific elite from any people group and then kill everybody else is basically what it amounts to. Is there something in the next million years that that the most stands out to you as the craziest, wildest, most insane idea that that put that would set it apart from a lot of these other writings that you might find in say tragedy and hope or something like that? Well, Quigley and tragedy and hope is because he's a military historian. He's kind of reserved when it comes to future projections and predictions. He does talk about that. Like I said, the the middle chapter in tragedy and hope is about the emergence of supercomputers and a technocratic managerial society. But even in that, he, and he does say, yeah, we'll have to depopulate and yeah, you know, computers will run every aspect of your life and blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't go too far into like, um, predicting geoengineering and, and terraforming and cloning, but all of these dudes do like they go full on into, Oh yeah, we will, every baby will be born in a test tube. There will no longer be, you know, baby birth in the normal way uh everybody will have their genetics determined by a technology so you won't have not only will you not have natural birth you won't have babies popping out as they were like it'll be designer babies basically um let me one of the weird parts in his book was that he's got a section where he talks about elite bloodlines and that does come up in some writings of the elite because of the emphasis on genetics and and that kind of stuff but for example i don't recall anything in i mean i think bertrand russell because he was a pretty rabid eugenicist he he probably would have had an attitude of 
I mean, being Lord Bertrand, like he, I'm sure he thought his, his bloodline was superior to everyone else. But there's a weird chapter in Charles Galton Darwin's book where he talks about the fact that the elites, their blood is special because they come from the elites of the past who, who practiced cannibalism and incest. I'm not joking. Like he's, he's like, we had the balls to do this kind of stuff so that that's what makes us kind of psychotic and he calls like we wild. survived because we ate our enemies so look yeah. at us where this is why we're the most powerful exactly and, and he calls them the wild men he says that the elite are the wild men who can't be tamed and he says the pop the mass population are the people who uh can be domesticated They're the wild men in, in the nice suit basically and, and the weirdest part is that he says that when we are in control, he says, in the next million years, I don't know if you, have you seen Moonraker? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. So he, he basically says that we will have a situation where we'll be the progenitors of our own race. So we'll have like a Hugo Drax set up where we, <laughs> we can not, I mean, through like technology, we, we will clone ourselves and basically have <clears throat> our own royal bloodline will be the beings that will colonize the stars. I thought that was pretty sci-fi you know wild there's a section on that so that, that was probably the wildest thing in here that's something else i kind of did want to segue into because you know, i i you mentioned hg wells a lot as part of this kind of propaganda and you know, i i grew up and i still am i mean sci-fi is like my favorite genre that exists um but now it's it's as i've grown older and learned more about this stuff it's, it's tainted some of it a little bit because now some of it I, I i read and i see oh my this is actually just propaganda yeah um so can you dig into like the role of writers like hg wells and and why they put so much of these plans into into fiction works yeah that was an idea i encountered through studying espionage because back in the early 1900s the british had the uh, official secrets act so they couldn't immediately go and put out information that might relate to government secrets um and they still have that in the uk like they still have to there was a famous spy uh, i did an interview with a few years ago um Annie Michonne, and she had to flee the UK because of the Official Secrets Act laws that they said she violated by talking about um, what they had told MI6 and MI5 to do in regard to Gaddafi. And so when they talked about, uh, her and her partner talked about the fact that they were ordered not to go after bin Laden and other so-called terrorists. Like they were like, well, wait a minute, we're in this war on terror. Why would we not go after? And why would we go after the top guy? You said is is, is yeah, the book well, and that's because he was working for the people in the West, right? That, that that's the only way that that narrative makes sense. So right. anyway, so they was like, oh, you violated the Official Secrets Act. We're going to prosecute. So she had to flee to France or whatever. And anyway, um, so what I started realizing at that time, that's when I was doing the grad work on the Fleming stuff, was that the British writers kind of pioneered in their fiction, this whole, and there's actually a whole book on this, uh, this idea of writing into fiction, real stuff. So you can actually go read, uh, like Conrad's book, secret agent, uh, some of Ian Fleming's books, like they'll be writing into the fiction, real stuff. So it's kind of like a challenge to nerds, right. To decode and figure out like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that that's this story of James Bond is right. This is reflecting when Ian Fleming was doing that. so so the british really pioneered this in the early 1900s through through doing that stuff um there's a case i think we're in the secret agent 
uh, Conrad mentions false flags and stuff like that. So this is anyway. So uh, I, no, I started noticing that, and then I realized, well, wait a minute. So you know, like you, I've grown up loving watching all the science fiction and fantasy stuff, and um, I, I was never like a, I didn't grow up as a huge fan of H.G. Wells, but I knew about Time Machine and uh, Island of Doctor Moreau and this kind of stuff. So then I went and read a bunch of H.G. Wells's books, both fiction and nonfiction. I started realizing, oh, so actually this dude was like the premier propagandist of his time. Mm. So H.G. Wells is, I mean, if you read about propaganda, he's like, he's like the granddaddy of it. Um, and so then you start to realize, well, actually his method of putting his future projections into the science fiction was genius because that's a much better way to reach the masses right. than fact-based boring books right nobody knows about hg wells's book on religion which i've read or jamie read actually we did a show on that god the invisible king nobody has read uh open conspiracy and new world order by hg wells his his fact books but zillions of people have read war of the worlds time machine island of dr moreau which all put the same messages and propaganda into the fiction so you're absolutely right there And, and that's what i realized was that you know, he, he predicted the, the so-called moon event, right? Landing stuff. He wrote a book about that way before like 1914. I think he predicted the uh, world war two in shape of things to come. Um, he predicted, um, genetic modification in Island of Dr. Moreau. So, I mean, you see, you see the, the, I mean, he even has atomic bombs right in his, in his books. So, all of that he put into the science fiction. I, I believe that was propaganda for sure. I mean, he like he pioneered doing war poster propaganda. Like he came up with this thing called the Hun, which was just this barbaric Eastern Eurasian figure. Right, right, right. That was his whole idea was to just do a poster that has the bad guys looking like you know barbar- barbarians, and that was revolutionary for its time. Is the idea to basically put? you know, put this stuff into the culture in a fantastical way. So of course this is just a wild book that these guys wrote and it's really cool and everybody loves it. And, um, but over time you've put these ideas in for generations. It's at some point here. So when some of this stuff actually comes into reality, it doesn't, it doesn't seem all that crazy. It just seems like something we've subconsciously been conditioned to accept as, yeah, this is, this is the future. That's what science fiction is. It's just telling us what's, what's coming later. Yeah. I I get asked that question a lot. That's kind of, a big portion of what my two books are on is this idea of so-called predictive programming or what is the purpose of seeding fiction with future events or future possible events. <clears throat> and I think that it, it certainly has a uh, psychological warfare component to it that it has the idea of, and it contains the idea of warming people up to this when it comes out, especially when it comes to conditioning us for technological stuff. So like smart cities and communal living and dystopia, like all of those things could be ways to, to warm people up to stuff because even though it's entering our minds through fiction and it's kind of just being stored in our subconscious or whatever, if we watch hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of dystopian stories and images and whatnot, or, or whatever, it still is affecting us. Even if we don't know. And I'm not trying to be a weirdo, like, oh, you can't watch these things. It's bad for you. Um, I mean, it's unavoidable, right? There's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with fiction, but um, it can prepare people and condition them for sure. I think there's also elements of 
gaslighting that can be involved in this. Um, and I'm not the only, like there's other academics that have written on this topic. So it's not like some weird conspiracy thing. Like the, there's um, Professor Elliot Gaines. He wrote a whole thing about um, things prior to 9-11 kind of presaging or, or being symbolic of the big nine event in fiction works. Um, and why might that be? Uh, so there's there's different theories as to why it might be, but from my vantage point, it looks like just the old British model of either either people who sincerely want to put messages in pop culture to get the the word out, uh, or people who have more malicious designs to prepare people for these kinds of events. Like gaslighting. Gang, well, you know who's not going to gaslight you? That is our friends Carlos and Vanessa Abelar from Paloma Verde CBD, the best darn CBD products you are going to find anywhere at all. To this day, the uh, CBD tincture, the salve, I think I'm just mixing up terms now, but the salve, the one you rub on your skin um, is the only thing that has ever really helped this pain that I always have in my, my upper shoulder or my neck. Can't recommend it highly enough. Can't recommend the CBD gummies highly enough. My only complaint, as always, they are just too darn delicious. The best thing about these products, they are like-minded people. They are supporters and fans of this show. So by helping them, you help us. By helping us, you help them. And you help yourselves because you help your favorite podcast here grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Do not forget to use our amazing discount. I almost forgot to even tell you about it because really, it's, it's well worth it even without the discount. But... You do get a discount. You get 20% off your order and free shipping for all orders over $75 by using discount code ROAR at checkout. Again, use that discount code ROAR for 20% off. I want to dig into the role of religion that religion plays in this, um, both maybe to combat it. We can talk about that later, but in terms of um, how they plan to use or do use the concept of a world religion um, when trying to enact this stuff. And I, I, I read a book some time ago that I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with um, Seraphim Rose's, uh, I think it's called Orthodoxy and the, the New World Religion or something like that, or the Religion of the Future. And the way he describes it there, and this is a book from like, I think like 30 years ago or something, 20 years ago. And and um, you know, he, he describes it as not, not, it's not like there's one religion. It's the acceptance of all religions as if they're all saying the same basic thing and i i used to be very much like oh yeah we want to accept everybody and keep them all into the umbrella but after reading his book and seeing it through that filter it's hard not to see that kind of like diversity talk or what have you and i of course i believe anybody you know people should be free to believe whatever they want but when you see that it's directed in a certain way it's hard not to see that the the connection to the kind of stuff you're talking about and how bringing everybody under what may be whether or not it's sold as a world religion or not is, is maybe irrelevant, but how do you see that playing into how these plans are, are laid out? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it because, uh, AC Wells has a book called God, the invisible King. And in that book, it's, it's his book on religion. He says that the religion of the future will be an, an outer portico religion of the scientific elite and basically it will be something like you're talking about just a, a loose new agey type of religion where everything is acceptable as long as it's acceptable to right. the inner elite <laughs> so in other words uh the only thing that's not acceptable is something that's mutually exclusive mm -hmm. or says that there's objective truth and so i think sir from rose was uh, correct to look at hinduism as a kind of a predecessor to a, a future world religion or something amenable to a world religion um, because of its notion of accepting all the deities at the same time. 
Um, and, and, and you're right that in that book, he, he does focus at least a couple chapters on Hinduism. Uh, and then I separately from that way before I'd ever read Father Sir from Rose's book, I'd read, uh, I mentioned earlier, the early conspiracy texts that mentioned the Rockefeller supporting the United Nations and supporting a, the idea of a world religion. And then if you read the Rockefeller's authorized biography, there's a whole chapter on this where they wanted to co-opt religion to be a tool at one time of just Americanism. Um, and then if you get into the 1960s, there's a really good book that uh, David Wimhoff wrote about the co-opting of the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II for Americanism called, uh, it's a Time Life magazine, an American proposition, uh, the doctrinal warfare program in, re in regard to uh, John Courtney Murray, the famous Jesuit. Uh, that's all about the CIA co-opting the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II. But that's, not, that's the same entity that, the Rockefeller biography is describing because the CFR, Trilateral Commission, CIA, all of those were basically set up under the aegis of the Rockefellers in concert in tandem with the British elite power structure. So they're all allied there. Uh, that is the Anglo-American establishment. So religion is, is again, uh, a way to reach a lot more people than boring science books, right? Boring facts. How many people are going to really read next million years? Very few. How many people are going to be affected by their preacher, their local religious community way more <laughs> infinitely more people right so if you can take these religions and or, or groups and make them into basically ngos which is what happens then it's a lot more effective from their vantage point and they actually had you know 100 years ago the rockefellers were for example were talking about how can we take religions and make them basically into ngos <laughs> and that's what what they are that's where we're at now is that, that, that they've they've been very successful in co-opting a lot of religions and organizations to basically gradually sort of promote this this method uh, towards world government. So yeah, this is a very real thing, and and I mean it. It even has its roots as well back in missionaries being spies. I mean the Rockefellers. There's a whole uh, big fat academic book on the how the Rockefeller family used Protestant missionaries for intelligence assets. It's called I think Thy Will Be Done. Uh, I think it's over there on the shelf, but. So, so in other words, given that they had missionaries, Protestant missionaries working as spies in Latin South America, for example, you could see how they would see religion just, just purely as a tool. They don't view it as a, as an end in itself. On the flip side of that, then if, if they try to use religion and kind of this world religion or this, you know, everything is, is all under the same umbrella and we accept everything. If, if that's, if that's the one side of it. So do you, and I know you're an Orthodox Christian, so maybe you can kind of describe your own journey through this a little bit. Do you see that as what it could also be a bulwark against this stuff? Because it seems to me that the idea behind this, you know, accept all the religions and everything's subjective and maybe it's all kind of a postmodern view of religion is that it's, it's rejecting the ones that keep people strong. It's kind of rejecting the ones that where people say, no, this is the truth. This is the truth. And I believe it. And you're not going to budge me from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the Wim Hof book, he makes a great point that ecumenism and the new age syncretism views are basically commodification of religion. So it's basically making it's viewing religion like a consumer buffet, right? Where it's like, if the, if you, if the West has been inculcated with a consumerist mindset, then the religious analog to that is the notion of being able to buffet style, pick and choose your religion, 
And so ecumenism is the natural result of that. And, and there's a whole chapter in the Rockefeller's biography on how they created the ecumenist movement. They brag about it, right? Because again, they say this is a tool for um, steering and co-opting the religions in the direction that we want to go. So to be very clear and to be fair, there's no religious group that's immune to this. Every religious group out there has been affected by and has kind of an internal battle within them to move in this direction versus the more traditional, um, you, I guess you could say, conservative elements within those groups. Um, the Orthodox Church is no uh, is not a, a, is is subject to this as well. So we are presently dealing with the exact same kind of fissured right down the middle, um, and it doesn't just spill out into liberalism versus conservatism. I mean, it's happening right now between the U.S. State Department influencing Patriarch Bartholomew and the, the stuff that's going on in the Ukraine is is also directly part of this. And so I think that what the the elites try to do what the global strategy is the globalist strategy is to basically split a lot of these religions down the middle so there will be an, uh, an analogous situation with the roman catholic church where it's splitting over francis and his kind of radical liberalism the orthodox church even though it's not a top-down papal system it's decentralized it's being split down the middle through the fissure between um the moscow patriarchate and the patriarch of constantinople uh, again the Patriarch Constantinople publicly is totally 100% basically an asset of the U.S. State Department. I mean, it's, it's super public. It's super easy to see and understand. Uh, but so it's playing out in that way there, uh, as well as the d divide between the liberal and the conservative uh, camps in orthodoxy. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, as I said, Wim Hof's whole 800-page book was detailing how it was co-opted uh, in the 60s through the, through the CIA's program and what was being pushed at Vatican II. And so they have their own fissure that's going on there in the middle of that church. Uh, Protestantism, interestingly, most of the Protestant seminaries were bought off a by a lot of Rockefeller money in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So you, that's the, how it was that the Protestant churches within a few decades were all what you, could, what you could call fundamentalist. Within a few decades, they all became liberal. And that was, you can trace it directly to the influence of Rockefeller Foundation money to all the Protestant seminaries. They don't really care about the denominations. They just care about turning them into, again, tools of, or basically making them into NGOs. Uh, so that's what happened to all those Protestant churches and seminaries and why they're all uh, basically Skittles churches now. Even just growing up Jewish, I mean, I, I even remember being told like, okay, there's like the Orthodox Jews um, that believe, they actually believe what they're talking about. They, they pretty much believe in the Bible and they do all the rituals and they actually practice it. And then there's the Reformed Jews, which is kind of the synagogue we went to. And it was, I mean, they didn't describe it this way, but looking back, it's like, oh, the Reformed Jews, the ones that don't really believe this stuff or, or don't act like they really believe this stuff and just like to drink wine on, on, on Saturday. You know, I mean, it's, and it's it, through that filter, I can even see just how it seems like really a lot of it is just divide these religions up confuse people about what they are so that maybe if there's all these controversies and all these kind of schisms within these religions that that really can de-strengthen a lot of the people that believe them oh absolutely yeah and, and i if i recall uh I have, I have a friend who went from reformed judaism to orthodoxy uh, michael Whitkoff. you know he talks about the history of reformed judaism kind of being this very uh, very amenable to basically anything relativism and so forth. So that would be a good example of uh, an analog to what I'm talking about. Um, 
but yeah, it, you, you can you can include uh, Judaism as well. Uh, and it's it's different sort of schisms and, and splits. Uh, they have been influenced as well by this sort of uh, ecumenist movement for sure. Um, some of the early ecumenists were, in fact, uh, rabbis. Uh, you can go to there's a there's a chapter in Wemhoff's book where he talks about uh, the 1960s ecumenist movement was the first meetings that the the Catholic that Roman Catholics attended were pioneered by uh, certain rabbis. I don't remember who they were, but I think they were reformed Jews. Can you describe a little more some of your own journey through religion and and how you ended up arriving at Orthodox Christianity? And I mean, is it that you see this as the the one truth or is it what works for you and certain people? What's what's your view and how did you get here? Well, my quest was always truth with a capital T. So I, I wanted to know what was true at all costs. So uh, that led me through three or four different positions in my life over the years. And so being raised Baptist, uh, I didn't really, you know, it was, it was semi-serious. <laughs> we took it semi-serious. I mean, I wasn't super serious. Uh, and then when I was 18, 19, like I said, I had uh, multiple things. It wasn't just a bad acid trip. There was a bunch of other things going on that kind of got me into starting to read the Bible and ask philosophical questions and take philosophy classes and whatnot, <clears throat> ask him, you know, just big, big, big life questions. So that sent me down, I guess you could say a religious rabbit hole journey of uh, uh, trying to figure out, you know, well, what is true here? And like you, when I was 17, 18, I probably, I just had like a really generic kind of new agey kind of view. Like, yeah, man, all the religions are cool or whatever. Uh, let's all just meditate. Or whatever. <laughs> let's just meditate, man. Then, uh, so I started getting into i think philosophy had a lot more to do with the notions of what it is to seek for truth objective truth so a lot of philosophy classes prompted me to ask those kinds of questions at the same time as i was you know reading more and more about the bible and theology and whatnot so uh i got into i kind of moved backwards in history from like the present day and churchianity to going further and further and further back so i, I was uh protestant and then I started looking at the reformers, or I was evangelical, and I was like, "Well, why do we do this as Baptists? Like, what's the difference between the Baptist Church and you know this and that?" So I started reading church history. Um, ended up getting another degree in history, as well as a philosophy degree. So reading history got me asking more, you know, fundamental questions. Well, wait a minute, where you know the Protestants believe in Bible alone? Why? Where do they get this view? And that re led me to reading the church fathers and these guys here and asking more fundamental questions about, well, how do we get the Bible? If my Protestant religion is grounded on the notion of the Bible alone, how do I know that that's true? What, why don't I investigate that question? And then for me, that ended up being, no, actually, there's, there's not a way to you know, know the Bible from the Bible alone. You have to have the missing element of the church, the community of people who made the decision as to what books would go in the Bible. So that led me into asking more fundamental Catholic versus Protestant questions back in 2003. Um, I didn't know about orthodoxy at the time. It was just, for me at the time, it was just a Protestant versus Catholic type of debate. So I got really into Roman Catholicism. I became a Catholic in 2003. This is all the Catholic shelves over here. Um, got really into Thomas Aquinas and uh, all that kind of stuff. And so that was giving me a more philosophical approach to uh, to my religious beliefs, you're getting into Aquinas and whatnot. But uh, and then the more that I got into Catholicism, the more Roman Catholicism seemed to me to be problematic due to the papacy. So you know, just to boil it all down, to me it seemed very clear that 
the pre-Vatican II papal teaching contradicted the post-Vatican II papal teaching, uh, largely in regard to things like what we're talking about, New Age type stuff. And there's a famous document in Vatican II called Nostra Aetate, which to me is just night and day, if, if we're honest, it's night and day with what the papacy said in the Middle Ages. So for me, uh, that was a fundamental contradiction. The Roman Catholic system is built on the idea of the Pope and his indefectibility and infallibility. So there's not going to be and shouldn't be blatant, flat-out, night-and-day contradictions. But to me, there were. And so I, for a while, just had kind of no position. Uh, I didn't really have a, a church per se. I, I kept reading Platonic works, Neoplatonic works, perennialist works, comparative religion works. Uh, and then started warming up gradually to orthodoxy. It took me about 10 years to decide that I did want to finally become orthodox. So for me, it is about what's uh, capital T true. So I would say that I think orthodoxy is true. When you say true, I just want to dig into this a little more like capital T true. And when you're talking about, do you mean, I guess, the spiritual concepts of the religion or or like, do you think the Bible, I guess, as written is literally true? Do you think it is true in the sense of what it conveys? Or do you think it's some combination of that like what can you describe actually what you actually mean by capital t true as it pertains to your religious beliefs and then the bible in general well the bible is a collection of books that contain different types of literature so when i say quote if i were to say literally true well that would be applicable to the parts that are intent intent on being literal <laughs> so in other words poetic literature in isaiah is not literal but it's still true for me um, but yes, I do believe that the scriptures are inspired. I think that they do not contain errors. I think that they are accurate. Uh, I think that um, when it's applicable, they are literally true. Yes. All right. Well, one, one more question I have, Jay, as we wrap up here um, is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I've been talking about a lot more. A lot of people have been talking about a lot more. And I'm sure after the last two years, I, I think this kind of conversation probably does get a lot more attention. Um, but I, I, the question I really is, what can people do? You know, we can read all the books about what the elites plan. We can look at all the propaganda over hundreds of years or maybe more and see what they want to do and see where and then see, look at our real world, our material plane here and see, okay, these things all line up exactly with the things that they've been saying. But the question then is, what do you do? I mean, we can talk about it all day long, but just talking about it and informing people about it. How, what, where does that get us? And, and what can people actually do to combat it? Or is it kind of just like, well, I, I guess we understand what's going on more, but I, you know, all we can do is really focus on ourselves and how we deal with it. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I tend to advocate a series of things that are good to counteract this. I think that uh, there's some of the more obvious ones, like we should not, we should be uh, living on the land, getting away from the big cities. If you can having land, that's your own, um, being able to be as self-sufficient as possible. Not everybody has to be a farmer or a homesteader, but you should probably know your farmer at least. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the more you can maybe move in that direction, the better, the more self-sufficient and, and independent you can be, I think the better in, in terms of where we're going in this country. Unfortunately, uh, I'm a big advocate of Bitcoin, gold, silver. Those are all great things. Um, uh, having firearms are all great things. And then, not shopping at Fortune 100. I think that's a big thing that we should avoid uh, because that's just you know furthering the people that are trying to really enslave us. Um, I would say moving back towards not being on the internet all the time. I mean, this is something that I've had to kind of oh yeah like take inventory of because 
my job is on the internet and I've, I've just realized how much, how much I used to more, I used to read back in my twenties than I do now. And a lot of that has to do with how much time and, and, and focus is put on doing internet stuff as the job that I do. But I'm wanting, I'm starting to think maybe I need to actually like put some new structures into place to like not be on the internet so much so that I can get back to, I, I do the same thing. I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay off the internet more. I'm gonna do, then I, the next thing I know I'm on there doing a podcast, I get yep. seven tweets and I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm suddenly in the matrix yep. here. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, all those things are the, are the steps in the right direction. And then, um, and then, like you said, yeah, like, like I, I really think the best, uh, counteraction to this is the Orthodox church. So, and it's not perfect in the sense of you're still going to have human elements there in this life in the, in that church, but it does have the means by which we can be empowered to fight it on a spiritual level. All right, Jay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. But uh, before I let you go, just feel free to let everybody know all the ways they can find your work and keep track of everything you're doing. Yeah. So all of what I do goes up over on my website, jaysanalysis.com. So any of the fourth hours of uh, Al Jonas that I host, uh, those all go up on my website. My books and all that, you can buy signed copies of the website. The access to the archives of everything is, is I do a subscription service of the website. And then uh, I have a Rockfin channel that I'm a big fan of. That's a, a free speech-based platform that uh, I'm a big fan of. So if you want to, I do have some exclusive stuff over on Rockfin. So um, I'm a big advocate of that. People subscribe. It's free to subscribe, but then there's paid content on Rockfin as well. It's basically a way better Patreon, basically. Gotcha. All right. Well, well, Jay Dyer, thanks so much. Keep up the great work out there and keep on roaring. All right. Thank you, man. Have a good day. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jay Dyer, a guy I've been following for quite some time. And I think he kind of hits the perfect mix of the kind of things I've been talking about more and more on this show, especially when it comes to a little bit more of, I guess, what they call conspiracy to me. It's just describing uh, a lot of what is going on around us and describing the words of the people that are doing it in their own words. That is a lot of what this stuff um, is that's smeared as conspiracy really is. It's describing what is going on or what certain people are attempting to have go on. And I think in many cases, it's a lot more reporting on what they say than it is conjecture. Uh, I think there's a big difference there. And I think Jay is one of the best at reporting, analyzing, and breaking down all of this stuff. So please do check out his work, jaysanalysis.com. Again, he also hosts the fourth hour of the Voldemort podcast. Good old AJ. So check him out. That's all I've got, my friends. Don't forget to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com on Locals. You can follow my very sparse, recently, I will admit, writing at markedclair.substack.com. Uh, of course, check out the Lions of Liberty Network where you get all of our shows, Brian's brand new Mine's Dream Daydream, as well as John's Finding Freedom. You can get all those shows by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty Network. You can also subscribe to my show, Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare, individually. If you do that, or even if you don't, I would really appreciate you heading over to Apple Podcasts, searching Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare, given that feed a five-star rating, and a great review that will be do wonders uh, for helping me grow on that end. That's all I've got, my friends. Until next time. Live long! And live free. 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 And live free.